Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 19 to 39. So we have a long passage, but a critical one in the flow of the book this morning. And uh, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. And I will start there. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. And as we just prayed, we pray that you would allow us to constantly worship you and sing Hosanna, God save us. We praise you that in Jesus Christ, you have saved us once for all, as Hebrews has made so clear. Now we pray, Father, that you would save us from the ongoing effects and consequences of sin in our lives. Father, we pray Make us faithful to follow you so that we can receive the reward that is promised to those who endure. We pray, give us wisdom, Father, as we study this scripture this morning. Help us to understand it as it's a difficult passage to understand. Father, help us to believe your words and then help us most of all to apply it to our lives. We thank you. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Several years ago, I had a friend who, after college, embarked on a very hazardous but uh, also great quest of endurance. He decided he was going to hike the entirety of the Appalachian Trail, the Appalachian Trail. Some of you are familiar with the Appalachian Trail. Others of you perhaps are not. Uh, Here's a map that kind of shows the length of the Appalachian Trail, okay? So if you were unfamiliar with it before, you're getting a sense of the scope of uh, this mission. Uh, It starts down here at Springer Mountain in Georgia, and it goes all the way across 14 states along the eastern coast of the country up into Maine, Mount Katahdin, Maine. It spans uh, a number of elevations. The highest elevation is about 6,000 feet. The lowest is about 142 feet below sea level. It is a 2,100-mile trek. takes about 5 million steps to complete it. Uh, Since 1936, when the trail was opened, there have been about 11,000 people total who have completed the length of the trail. Um, Each year, only about 25% of those who begin finish. So there's thousands of people who begin every year determined that they're going to make it to the end, and uh, they don't. Only about a quarter of those who start finish. And there's all kinds of reasons that people quit. Maybe they hear about a problem with their family back home. Maybe they have problems with the weather. They start in the wrong time of year and it's either too cold or too hot where they are and they can't get through. They get injured. Many people just get tired of walking that far and they decide they're going to give up. Other people just get bored. Uh, What seems like an exciting quest at the beginning about after the 40th or 50th day when it looks exactly the same as the day before, people get tired. Some people don't plan well. They bring the wrong supplies. They bring too many supplies, so their pack is too heavy. They don't bring enough supplies, so they can't make it. There's all kinds of reasons that people quit. And as I thought about that illustration, and by the way, my friend made it all the way through, 2,100 miles. He was one of the few that year that made it all the way through. And as I thought about that, I thought, this is a great illustration of the Christian life. Because there are people that begin well. And if you think back to those first days after you trusted Jesus, or maybe if you trusted Jesus when you were very young, you think back to those first days after your faith really became your own. And everything about Jesus was exciting to you. You wanted to tell everybody you knew, your family, friends, you didn't care about the consequences to your reputation or your prestige. You wanted to spend time in the scripture And you couldn't get enough of the word of God because it was fresh and exciting and new. You wanted to pray because you realized that the spirit of God was now living within you. And through prayer, you could actually approach and have access to God. And so there's this sweetness to those first days as a Christian. But I think what can happen is over the long haul, it can begin to get dreary. And there's all kinds of things that can cause us to essentially leave off our walk with Jesus Christ. We get tired, fatigued. On a day-to-day basis, maybe we don't have the same thrilling experience of God that we had in those first days. Maybe we experience persecution or ridicule for our faith. Maybe there's just something else in the world that attracts us more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we begin to pour our energies into that. Maybe there are trials that happen in our lives that make us bitter and frustrated. And all kinds of things can happen. And usually it doesn't happen overnight, but over a period of time, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves slowly drifting away from the truth. 
till we reach a place where we walk away. I've seen it happen to friends of mine, uh, men that I went to college with, that I walked alongside with in college. We worshiped together in this room. We prayed together and we led together. And now they no longer claim allegiance to Jesus Christ. Or they do on one level, but they've just decided to stop the pursuit of walking with him closely. It's a real danger for you and me, and the audience that our author is writing to face this danger as well. And remember, as he is writing to them, these are men and women that are undergoing persecution because of their faith. And he makes it clear that even in the past, they've had their property seized, they've experienced hardship for the gospel, and now they're about to experience it again, and many of them are on the verge of saying, you know, I don't want to have anything more to do with identifying with Jesus. But instead, I'd rather go back to the safety of Judaism. And so there were men and women who were tempted to leave the fellowship of believers and walk away. In the first century context to which he's writing, there really wasn't such a thing as as often we have now. There really wasn't such a thing as a person who just decided to go to church and sit there on Sunday morning but had no real belief in Jesus Christ. And the reason is because if you proclaimed belief in Jesus Christ and you were baptized, that inherently meant you were going to be persecuted. And they knew that. And so you counted the cost before you walked into that assembly. And so you have men and women that they really believe in Jesus and they really have believed, but now they're tempted to walk away from it all. And that's what this warning is about is saying, stay the course. Not everybody who begins will finish well. You stay the course, stand firm. And he's going to give them a very strong warning. This is the toughest passage in Hebrews and one of the toughest in the Bible, in the New Testament, I think. Because he gives these believers a very stern warning regarding the consequences of walking away. But he also talks to them about the rewards of persevering in faith. And he's going to say, for you and me, for believers in Jesus Christ, there are genuine consequences for walking away. And there are genuine rewards for persevering. And that's where he's going to take us this morning. And where he begins is by giving us an exhortation. And the exhortation is simply stay the course. Look again at verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author takes the role here of a person who's going to keep them in line, focus them on staying the course. Some of you may know we have a preschool that meets here at our church during the week. In fact, both of my daughters have gone to it. And I don't know if you've ever spent time around preschool kids. And what you may have seen is a preschool teacher has a difficult job. Her job is to keep all of these little kids moving to the right places at the right time. And so if you come out here on uh, during the week and you watch these kids, you'll see that the preschool teacher will have a rope And if they need to go to the bathroom and they need to go outside or they need to go somewhere, she'll line them up, all these two or three-year-olds, and she'll say, everybody hold on to this rope 
while we walk down the hall. And so you see these kids and they're, you know, they're walking along and they've got the rope. And as long as they stay holding to the rope, they're good. They're going the right direction, but it doesn't always work, right? Because as you watch every so often, you'll see a kid go, oh, what's on the wall, right? And he'll let go of the rope and he'll walk over there, right? I've walked down the hall before and my three-year-old will spot me from across the hall and she's just gone. She lets go of the rope and just walks off, right? And I have to bring her back and set her back on the rope. Because they do not always do a good job of focusing on the destination. All right, what our author is going to do here is he's going to say, focus on the goal, on the destination. You grab onto this rope, which is Jesus Christ, and you walk to where he is leading you. Stay the course, persevere. And he's going to give a why and he's going to give a how. All right, the why is this, because of the work of Jesus Christ. You persevere because of what Jesus has done for you. And that was verses 19 to 21. Brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now, if you've been following Hebrews, you know, this is a summary of everything he's been arguing since chapter seven. Jesus is our great high priest, the mediator between us and God better than any priest of the Old Testament system because he's not sinful. No atonement needs to be made for his sins. He lives forever, unlike the old priest who died. So Jesus is our better high priest. He also has inaugurated access for us to God because of the death and resurrection that he provided for us because Jesus gave his flesh. He died for us and he rose again. Now we have access to God. That's the argument of seven through 10. And he says, now, as you want to stay the course, what you need to continually do is look back to that, to the work of Christ and remember what Christ has done on your behalf. Because if Christ's work is effective, then he is the only way, the only way to know God. He is the only way to have eternal life. He is the only way that you're going to have a life of significance and purpose. And this author is making the assumption here that his readers are Christians. He calls them brethren numerous times in this passage. And he's saying, even for the Christian, you need to continually go back and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done on your behalf so that you are motivated to persevere. It may be that there's somebody here and you have not yet trusted in what Jesus Christ has done for you. Before we go any further into this passage, What you need to know is that Jesus Christ, the very son of God, died, took our punishment because we disobeyed God. And his death served as the sacrifice for our sins so we do not have to experience the eternal wrath of God. Then he rose again, defeating death and sin. And for those who believe in him, you have eternal life. The spirit of God lives in you and you have the opportunity and the privilege to worship God forever. And so the author says, for those who have trusted Jesus Christ, keep going back. Remember the work of Christ. So that's the reason we stay the course. The means he gives is three commands here, faith, hope, and love. All right, verse 22, let us draw near. That's the first command, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, keep going back to what Jesus has done. Because of his sacrifice, he sprinkled you clean. Your heart no longer is filled with sin. You no longer have a permanently evil stained conscience. Jesus has removed the stain of sin. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. This is probably a reference to baptism, which was a public confession of what had happened internally to them. 
that they had publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ said, I now identify with him. And so he says, you continually remind yourself of what Jesus has done. And I would encourage you as well, as you walk with Jesus Christ, continually go back to the gospel. If the basics of the gospel bore you, your heart's starting to get cold. And you're already in danger of what he's talking about. He says, continually go back. Remember what Jesus has done. Faith, second command, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. In other words, we don't just look back. Now we look forward to what Jesus will provide for those who believe in him. And for those who believe in Jesus Christ, there is the promise of eternal life rather than eternal death. But also for those who persevere, we see all the way throughout the scriptures that there is a promise of reward. Paul talks in 2 Timothy 4 about how he's fought the good fight. He's finished the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which God will award not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. And the idea is that for those who are faithful, there is an extra measure of reward. And we don't know exactly what that looks like from scripture. Often it's referred to as crowns, crowns that we seemingly throw at the feet of Jesus in worship of him. Second Timothy talks about the opportunity for those who endure to reign with him. Although Jesus never denies ultimately his own because he can't deny himself, there are those rewards for those who endure. Revelation 20 talks about that as well. And so he calls believers to look forward to the hope that God has promised to those who are faithful because God does not waver. Notice he repeatedly takes us back to what God has done, not what we have done. He doesn't say, look at how good you were last week and then persevere. Look at how nice you were to your sister or your mom. Look at how many people you talked to about Jesus. No, he says, go back to what Jesus has done and the promises that gives us before God. And then thirdly, the love, he says, uh, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is an exhortation to community. There was no way then and there's no way now that a person could go it alone as a lone ranger Christian, especially in the midst of persecution. If they left the fellowship of believers, they were going to fall away. They needed community to challenge them to walk with God to help them remember the death and resurrection of Christ as they got together weekly and they would celebrate communion and they would remember the blood and the body of Christ sacrificed for them. And then they would rejoice that Jesus was coming back and they would remember the hope. But they did that in community and without community, they were determined and destined to fall away. I overheard some friends just this past week talking about their desire to lose a few extra pounds. And so these two ladies had made a no sugar pact Right? Uh, I don't know if they pinky swore on it or what, but they had made an agreement between the two of them that they would allow no sugar to pass their lips. Now, if you make a determination like that yourself, and some of you perhaps had, it's very hard to stick to it by yourself, isn't it? But if you've got somebody standing right there going, don't get the Oreo, right? <laughs> don't do it. Can't have that donut this morning. It's a lot easier, isn't it? You've got somebody challenging you to do what's right. And that's what we do for each other as believers in Christ. A similar experience I can think of is from back when I was in college. Uh, for some reason, at the end of the semester, finals time, I always had finals on the very last day of finals. Always. 
And uh, Tuesday or whatever, when it was the second to last day, all my friends would be done. And they're like, hey, we're going to go party. We're going to have a fun time. Hey, I'm going home. I'm going to go to the beach, you know. And all this kind of stuff, I still had to go to the library. And it was lonely and it was sad. And as I sat there alone and sad, it was also hard to study. And I thought, I really don't care about what's going on tomorrow. I might care in a week, but I don't care right now. But there were a couple of times where I'd have one or two friends that were in the same boat and they'd come and they'd sit next to me and they'd study and looking up and going, all right, she's miserable too. I can go back to my books, right? (laughs) Made me feel better. There's something about community that allows us to push on because we are made for it. And so he says, don't forsake the assembling together because that's how you're going to remember what Jesus has done. That's how you're going to look forward to the hope of Jesus Christ in the future. If you are not engaged in meaningful community with other believers in the body of Christ, you will not last long in your profession of faith. You won't. And and sitting here on Sunday morning, although it's valuable and good, going to breakaway, although it's valuable and good, is not the depth of community that will keep you from walking away. It's life on life. Knowing people on a deeper level. Maybe that's through a small group. Maybe that is through a discipleship group. Whatever it is, knowing somebody well enough that they can ask you, how are you doing? Are you remembering Jesus Christ? Are you looking forward to the hope of the future? How's your heart toward God? So he says, stay the course. And the reason he gives this exhortation is because he's going to tell us now that sin and walking away has major consequences. Those who drift are in danger of some serious consequences. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a scary passage. It should scare you a little bit. It's also an extremely challenging passage figure out what exactly is he saying here? Because the language, when we see fire, we immediately begin to think, is that hell? What is going on? Is he saying that a real Christian could go to hell? Maybe he's not talking to real Christians. What is going on in this passage? What is he warning against? Who is he warning? What is the sin they commit? All right, I'm going to walk through just a number of options for how we can understand this passage. And then I'm going to tell y'all where I kind of land on it. All right, with the understanding that uh, my own understanding of this and knowledge of this is still forming just like yours. But I want to walk through some options and then tell you where I am and kind of why I land there. All right, there's a few ways this passage I think could be interpreted. First of all, he could be talking about believers, real believers who sin and then lose their salvation. He could be saying, if you're a Christian and then you go on sinning willfully, uh, what's going to happen to you is that God will revoke the gift that he gave you in Jesus Christ and you no longer have salvation. Okay, but the problem with this is that there are numerous passages in the New Testament that seem to indicate that our salvation is secure. Perhaps the most powerful one is Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 39. 
Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is Paul's unqualified affirmation of the fact that once a person is in Jesus Christ, there are no charges against him that can hold, no matter how grievously we sin. It says not even any other created thing can separate us from God. I would include myself as a created thing. Hopefully you would as well. The reality is John 10, again, Jesus says, I know my sheep. Father has given them to me. Nobody can snatch them from my hand. I think the scripture is so clear in this idea that what God gives, because it's a gift given by God through Jesus Christ, based on the work of Jesus Christ, appropriated by faith in Jesus Christ, it cannot be revoked. So that's why I don't go this direction, all right? Another option could be this, that it's false Christians within the church. In other words, that there's a subset of people within this church who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, but they don't really believe it. And he's saying, you need to be careful because you may not really believe this. You may never have believed it. You might be destined for hell and not even know it. All right, that's an extremely popular view on this passage. It's a challenging view, though, because it seems like all throughout the context, he refers to all of these people as Christians. Verse 19, he calls them brothers. Verse 30, he says, uh, the Lord will judge who? His people. Verse 32, remember the former days when after being enlightened, being enlightened, that's a shorthand for what he talked about in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, where he goes through numerous descriptions of these people. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've par- been partakers of the Holy Spirit. You've been enlightened. You know the truth. And then he goes on here in verses 32 to 39 to describe all the suffering they already experienced for Jesus. Or the reality is if these men and women were not believers in Jesus Christ, if they were pretenders, that scares me because they've endured more suffering than I have. They've been more faithful to Jesus than many of us have in this room. And the reality is if he was not talking to true Christians, I don't know how more clearly he could say it. Okay, so the the reality is I I don't buy this one either. I think that these are genuine believers that he is exhorting. All right, a third option might be this, that it's true Christians who are warned of a hypothetical situation. In other words, what he's saying is this, is if you sin deliberately and willfully and you walk away and you keep going that way, if you were to do that, you would be destined for hell. But then that can't happen anyway. So don't worry about it. Be encouraged. So it's a hypothetical warning. Okay, there's a problem with that view as well. The problem is uh, a hypothetical warning doesn't really carry any weight. Why would I warn you about a hypothetical situation? Especially if I'm intending to communicate to you that it's hypothetical. Imagine that you're driving down the road, you're going 20 miles over the speed limit, cop pulls you over and he says, uh, do you know how fast you were going? You say, no, or you were going 60 in a 40. He says, do you know what would happen if you kept going faster and faster? You would eventually break the gravitational pull of the earth's orbit and fly off into space. Do you know how dangerous that is? All right. Well, that can't happen, right? You know, that can't happen. You're going to go, all right, see you later. Okay. 
a hypothetical warning of something that could never happen carries no weight. I think he's warning them about a genuine danger here, and I think he's warning true Christians of a genuine danger. All right, so where I land on this passage is this. I think what's going on is uh, these are true believers, all right, true believers. I think he's warning them of real consequences, not hypothetical consequences, but I don't think that the consequences are loss of salvation. I think there are other severe consequences that he warns them of as believers, Consequences severe enough that, yes, you and I should fear a bit. So what are the consequences? Well, he clearly says they are worse than death. Now, the reason I think he goes there is because of this. The background from the Old Testament is critical in understanding this passage. In the Old Testament, if you sinned with what was called a high hand, the penalty was death. All right, that's Numbers 15, 30 to 31. Let's look at that real quick. But the person who does anything defiantly, all right, that's the same idea as Hebrews talks about here is willfully. Person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Being cut off had the idea either of being put to death or you would be cursed. And the curse would be that you had no future inheritance in the land. You might be barren, might not be able to have children, your children might die, but the curse of being cut off was not just death, but it was that you had no future inheritance in the land of Israel. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Now notice in the Old Testament, if somebody sinned defiantly, they would experience death. And in fact, right after this, there's an illustration of a guy who goes out and he gathers wood on the Sabbath, which is a death penalty type of sin in the Old Testament. He's violating the Sabbath willfully, defiantly, and they put him to death. He's cut off. The penalty was not that you forever lose your salvation. The penalty was you are cut off from covenant blessing with God's people. There were inheritances in the land, on the earth, that you would lose, right? And that was a severe penalty. Now, we're going to talk about what would be comparable for a believer. We're not in Israel. What would be comparable? We'll talk about that in just a minute. So that's the Old Testament background. The idea is this is a person who knows that he's defying God. This is a person that knows that he's willfully sinning, and he keeps doing it anyway. And the punishment is unbelievably severe. So that's the Old Testament background, all right? In the New Testament, we see that actually sin can lead to death. There are times when God may put a person to death for sin. 1 Corinthians 11, in the context of talking about the Lord's Supper, these people in Corinth were practicing the Lord's Supper incorrectly, disrespectfully. And Paul says, because of that, some of you have fallen asleep. Some of you have died because you are shaming the name of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11, Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they lie about the offering that they bring to Peter. What happens? Peter says, that's a bad idea. They're going to drag you out of here by your feet. And they fall down dead. Anybody who tells you that the New Testament God is not a God of judgment hasn't read the New Testament. There is still serious judgment even on God's people. Sin can lead to death, but there are also consequences that could be worse than death. There are things that are worse than death. All right, in the Old Testament, think about it. If you were cut off, you lost the opportunity to have any future inheritance for your family or your children died. When David loses his baby, I would imagine King David would have rather died instead of letting that baby die. There are things worse than death. And here in the context, as we've walked through Hebrews, I think there's a few things. Loss of ongoing fellowship with God. 
Hebrews 6, 1 through 8 says, you hit a point where your heart is so hardened, God cannot bring you to repentance. And you lose that opportunity on an ongoing basis to know him, to have fellowship with him, to walk with him. And there's guilt and shame and torment, even here and now, because of your sin. Loss of community with other believers. One of the discipline measures that men and women were called to take in the early church for somebody who was willfully sinning was to essentially remove them from fellowship. We're still called to do that. Treat them as an unbeliever. So they experience pain of loneliness and isolation and sadness. And then ultimately loss of eternal reward at the judgment seat of Christ. There's coming a time when all of us as believers will stand before Jesus Christ And although our salvation is secure, we will be rewarded or judged based upon how well we have pursued the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All of us. Paul includes himself. 1 Corinthians 3. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. There's that fire language. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. Notice fire doesn't always refer to hell in, in the Old Testament or the New Testament. There's a rebellion in the book of Numbers, sons of Korah disobey God. And what happens is uh, Moses says, sons of Korah, y'all all stand right there. Everybody else back way up. And then the ground opens up, fire leaps up from the ground, and consumes them, and they're gone. There's a real judgment on God's people that is worse than death for those who willfully choose to walk away. That's what he's getting at. It's a serious, serious penalty. Now, after giving the exhortation, sin has major consequences. He encourages them by saying, you can persevere. Verses 32 to 39. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. By the way, that idea of preserving of the soul, if you, if you do a word study on that through the New Testament, that word soul usually refers to a person's life, not just what we think of as the soul that leaves the body when you die, but it's their life. They save their lives from destruction, devastation, death, loss of community, loss of fellowship with God, loss of eternal reward. And instead, they pour themselves into a life that has eternal and lasting significance. So he's challenging them and he's acting as a cheerleader saying, you've endured in the past. If you keep enduring, there's a reward for the future. I looked back again this morning at the website for the Appalachian Trail and uh, I found this little blurb talking about preparing for it. I thought this was great. It says, do you have a realistic idea 
of both the joys and hardships you will encounter. Will, will you endure days of rain when every item you own becomes soggy, including your tent and sleeping bag? Are you willing to plod up seemingly endless mountains with muscles that ache only to see another grind still to come? No. Will you still be inspired <laughs> after every view starts to look the same and the trail seems like an endless green tunnel? No. A fierce commitment to the goal of completing the Appalachian Trail is one of the most important ingredients of success. There's nothing wrong with the attitude, I'll continue hiking as long as it's fun. But it won't get you 2,000 miles unless you have an exceptionally upbeat outlook. The key is the balance of enjoying the journey but keeping focused on the goal. Some days that may mean simply sticking to it when hiking seems like drudgery. Although through hikers often say walking the Appalachian Trail was considerably harder than they expected, many say it was the most rewarding and memorable adventure of their life. What a great description also of the Christian life. Okay, so as we close quickly, how, how can you do this? How do you persevere? I think we go back to the beginning of our passage again. Say, first of all, look back to Christ's sacrifice. Keep remembering what Jesus has done. Keep remembering what Jesus has done. Right? Look forward to eternal reward, to the hope that is promised. Paul talks about when we fight the good fight, we finish the race and there's this reward. We hear our Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come reign with me in my kingdom. We look forward to eternal reward. And then thirdly, stay in community with other believers. Or I may say, look sideways at your friends who encourage you to keep walking with Jesus. Because it is only through staying in community with other believers that you will remember to stay the course. We have a great opportunity here to worship God together and to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the hope that offers. That's why we come here each week. That's why we worship. That's why we hear from the word to act as an encouragement to us. So as we close, we're going to sing one more song. That song's intended to act as an encouragement to us that no matter what trials, temptations, distractions we may face, if we will persevere, there is reward. Despite the fact that there is consequence for falling away, God will reward those who are faithful. That it is well with our soul. That because of his once for all time sacrifice, we look to no other sacrifice. And instead we rest in the shelter that that provides us from your judgment and from your wrath. We pray, give us strength to persevere. Let us be able to reach the end of our days, Father, and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your rest. God, we thank you for this time. We pray be with us now as we go out. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week.